Hello and welcome to Running on Joy with Francesca Goodwin, the podcast that celebrates putting one foot in front of the other in whatever form that takes. This is a podcast that explores how we can live in a more connected, creative and compassionate manner for the benefit of our communities, our planet and our own mental and physical health. I'm your host, Francesca Goodwin, and every week I'll be asking a new interviewee what joy means to them. Running on Joy is ad-free, but if you enjoy the show, please do take a moment to leave a review and give feedback wherever you listen to your podcasts. You might also consider supporting the work of Running on Joy guest Dan Lawson through rubbish shoes and rerun clothing to end the cycle of wastage in the sports clothing and footwear industries. Follow at Rubbish Shoes and at Rerun.Clothing on Instagram for further information. Hello everyone, happy Monday. Heralding from Edinburgh, my guest today is a professional adventure climber and filmmaker. Their intrepid spirit has carried them across the globe, climbing, in their own words, every type of rock in every style. From an early career competing as part of the GB team and then working as the Scottish climbing team's head coach, they are now best known for their cutting-edge ascents on Alpine Rock, including becoming the first Briton to climb the infamous Alpine Trilogy. One of their latest challenges was climbing the world's hardest sea cliff, the Long Hope, on St John's Head, Orkney, along with their climbing partner, Alex Moore. This big wall sea cliff had previously only been attempted by the most famous rock climbers, including Ed Drummonds and Dave McLeod. The documentary film that they made of the effort, Not a Hope in Hoy, premiered at Kendall Mountain Festival in 2022. I am intrigued to speak with them today in both their capacity as a world-respected athlete and as a content creator with a flair for telling stories in an incredibly human manner. My thanks to them as well because just before we came on air they were cleaning up after their delightful new puppy who needs perhaps a little more dog training. (laughs) So thank you, welcome to the podcast Um, and please do introduce yourself in the manner of your choosing. First of all, thank you very much for having me on the podcast. My name's Robbie Phillips, and I am a Scottish climber uh, from Edinburgh. Um, yeah, I've been climbing for 17 years now. Um, as, as I said, I was a more of a contemporary climber, starting indoors and then getting into rock climbing through uh, sport climbing and bouldering, and then probably in my early 20s. I went off to the Alps and the Dolomites and got a taste for that adventurous side of climbing. And I'd say over the last decade, that's really what's um, sort of driven me is sort of the more adventurous, uh, big wall climbing, traditional climbing, wee bit of winter climbing thrown in there every now and again, just to scare me a wee bit. Um, but yeah, I love the adventure stuff. And I, I, I think definitely I love Scotland. I think living in Scotland, you've that's pretty much what climbing in Scotland's all about is the adventure side so yeah that's pretty much it. Well thank you so much Robbie for joining me and you you gave like quite a nice little summary there but I'm just interested just to set the scene um, of what you've done and and will be doing can you just talk a little bit about growing up and what family life was like? Yeah sure Um, so yeah I mean 
my I grew up in, in Edinburgh, as I said before, in the city. Uh, my mum and dad, uh, not not outdoorsy people at all. In fact, uh, my dad owned like a little bathroom store just on the suburbs of Edinburgh. Uh, my mum used to work from, but she was pretty much more or less like a stay at home mum. Yeah, just had a pretty normal childhood to all intents and purposes. Uh, didn't start climbing as I said until I was about fifteen, which is quite late actually. Um, before that, you know, I was just like a pretty normal kid, you know, just very average at school, enjoyed uh, video games and uh, playing with my mates and stuff like that. Um, and uh, I mean, when I found climbing, it, it, yeah, it changed, changed everything. Um, oh, I don't know what else. <laughs> um, um, yeah, uh, I think what else? Well, it was all a bit of a blur before climbing, I'm totally honest with you. <laughs> um, <laughs> climbing then became a lens through which you saw life. When did you, so what actually got you into kind of, well, the outdoors and climbing, which came first, really? Oh, I see, right, yeah. Well, I would say probably climbing came first because, <clears throat> well, I say, I say climbing came first because before before climbing, you know, I, I love nature. I've always been a, I've always been an avid uh, sort of nature lover. I love animals. Um, mm. I think if I hadn't gone down the sort of route of being a professional climber, it would have been something involved with, with nature and, and caring for animals. Um, so I guess in, in that way, I, I love the outdoors for that aspect of things. I wasn't somebody who went out, you know, walking all the time, um, you know, we didn't go like hill walking and that sort of stuff. And as I said, my parents, they weren't outdoors people at all. They weren't sporty at all. Um, so I got introduced to climbing through indoor climbing, mm-hmm. which when you live in cities like Edinburgh, which don't have great access to rocks, that's pretty much how you get into climbing. It's, I guess what I said, it's like a contemporary form of uh, climbers and we all get into it, climbing through the indoor uh, walls. And, uh, and yeah, I guess over time, I got introduced to rock climbing through my sort of mentors and friends and the climbing wall. Did a few climbing trips abroad, and that really sort of broadened my horizons, see the scope of what was possible. Um, and then eventually um, started exploring more of what Scotland had to offer. And I guess like Scott, what Scotland had, you know, Scotland for the adventurous side of climbing, it, it has a lot. Um, for for sport climbers, it has it has less because we have some quite strict ethics of no bolting in the mountains. Although we do have sport climbing crags in Scotland, the best climbing and the and the most fun stuff um, is all traditional climbing where you're placing placing you know protection as you go, mm-hmm. and that is probably less accessible for for young climbers, I would say straight off the bat. And it's probably less appealing as well because it is a little bit slower um, than just going out and clipping bolts and pulling hard. But um, but when you do get into it, that's what Scotland has in spades. And, and I guess, so getting out climbing in Scotland, getting out traditional climbing in Scotland really opened my eyes to the beauty of Scotland and the landscape and and also the nature we have here. And it's, just, yeah, it's really helped foster a passion for 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 Scot- Scotland and, and, and yeah, how our culture and our uh, natural landscape, I guess. 
That's amazing to hear that the sort of the the pride and love in in your voice when you're talking about your country and and the fact that that climbing was a, a sort of entry point into that. And what did the actual physical activity kind of give you when when you started climbing, which was indoors? What did you feel in those kind of initial sessions that then made you think, yeah, this is this is for me? Oh yeah, that's a good good question. You know. Honestly, a lot of people say, oh, you do something because you're, you're good at it, yeah? Yeah. Um, I, you know, like that's, that's how people, you know, if, if, you know when, they, when they take up a sport or something, it's usually someone has like a natural flair for it and that, that gives them the confidence. For me, honestly, <clears throat> I think it was the people that I was surrounded by mm-hmm. because, you know, well, I say I was like a normal kid. I actually struggled a lot at school. Um, and with socializing when I was younger um and I look back on it and I and you know I think oh man like why did I why did I struggle so much but I think it's just like a I think I just I I somehow struggled to to socialize people I didn't really get along with with many of the kids in my peer group I didn't enjoy the same things um and I I have this real stubbornness to uh do what other people are doing if I don't see the point in it, if I don't like it. So, I, you know, like I was a real late bloomer. I wasn't like interested in girls and I wasn't interested in parties and I wasn't interested in, you know, <clears throat> all the other things that like kids, you know, but they're young teenage boys and girls tend to, to tend to be into. Um, and then when I got, when I got into climbing and I started going to indoor climbing walls, I started meeting mostly actually older climbers well i say older older than me probably like people in the sort of like early 20s to to like you know older people just like in their 50s and 60s across like a a wide range of you know ethnicities and cultures and uh you know economic backgrounds everyone from bin men to lawyers and surgeons to you know just everyone you can possibly imagine at the climbing wall and the thing that was really noticeable was just how welcoming everybody was, how keen everybody was to encourage me. Uh, and it was probably like the f- one of the first times in my life I'd had such a, I felt such a connection to, to a group of people. Um, my girlfriend, Mari, often describes it as finding your tribe, yeah. which I, I really felt like that was it. I really felt like I belonged. And... Um, and as I did more climbing, because I just never wanted to like stop, I just wanted to go every day. And my mum, she was really, really supportive of that. And she was really happy that I'd found something that I was so passionate about. Because that was one thing that was fantastic about my mum was she was so driven for me to like try and find something that I, that, that I was passionate about. So she tried me with lots of different things. And, uh, and I just, yeah, like just one day just tried climbing and then it all just kind of like went from there. But yeah, as I said, um, yeah, it was just finding, finding that community, find that tribe. And because I was doing it all the time, I was getting better. And I, and uh, I was looking at the people who were better than me and kind of, cause I was quite competitive. I just wanted to do, I just wanted to sort of be better than them, <laughs> you know, just like, just in a nice kind of way, you know, and uh you know it wasn't like there's no animosity in it i was just like oh i just want to i was so inspired by everybody else around me 
and I think when you're you're young and you're keen and <clears throat> you do something all the time, it just yeah, it just you progress. And I got uh, as I as I, as you mentioned earlier, I um I was on the GB team for a, a short while, and for me that was like a huge confidence boost. Mm-hmm. Now it, there has to be a caveat put in this place because although I was on a GB team, I certainly wasn't like one of the best. You know, <laughs> I was like definitely like probably the worst actually on the team, and it was <laughs> the fact. I, I was on the team for, I think, one year, and it was the final year of junior competitions. But it was such a good thing for me to do because it just it gave me so much confidence. I was like, wow, I get to like represent my country. You know, I can, it's like almost like a nice little thing to have in your CV. I can understand what it's like to go to these countries and compete, you know, for a GB. And, and, and to, say, to be totally honest with you, like, to say I competed for GB, like I wasn't wasn't that bothered, you know, it wasn't wasn't a big thing for me to say, oh yeah, I'm, I'm a GB climber. But I think just kind of almost having achieved that little milestone, it just it just it, you know, if somebody else said to you, said somebody else basically says, yeah, you're good enough to represent your country. So that's that's a cool thing, you know. And uh, and I think yeah, all of these little things they were all massive confidence boosts for me uh, and. Competition climbing wasn't something I was interested in following or pursuing for for more than my sort of like my youth. Um, I loved rock climbing. I loved traveling. Um, I loved the outdoors. And that was what really uh, I was passionate about. And uh, when I left school and I left the sort of like competition climbing thing, that was 100% what I put my efforts into. Um, I... You know, I went to quite a good school and I, I left with good uh, good grades and I could have gone to university. In fact, I did go to university for six weeks. And um, I went to study biochemistry, but I remember the first day thinking, I do not want to be here, just here because I'm expected to be here. And uh, I was like, let's see how long this lasts for. And uh, I realized, six. I realized, you know, pretty early on, I was like, I don't think this is really for me. And so when I, I decided to leave and uh, I told my dad and he was like, that's fine, Robbie, you can leave, but you've got to be able to make money um, <laughs> somehow. And if climbing's the thing that you want to do, then you're going to have to figure out a way of making a career out of that. And so I, I quite liked that. It gave me the opportunity to sort of figure out or try and make, give me the opportunity to, to make my passion uh, sort of a career, but stipulated that you didn't want to, didn't want me to do it half arsed. Had to mm. do it properly and had to make it viable. And I think that that was a really important thing for him to stipulate. Otherwise, you know, maybe I would have just been a bit more of a climbing bum and not worried too much about it. Um, but um, but yeah, and and you know, I've always had that in the back of my mind with my climbing. It's like I want to climb and I want to do all these things, but I also need to make a career out of it. And and uh, yeah, I'd say like that's kind of what's led me through the last. Yeah, I'm 32 now. So, yeah, I don't know, like 12 years or something since I left school. Did you find that, did you sort of struggle a lot with kind of self-validation at that time? And did kind of your dad saying, you've got to make it kind of professional, did that almost give you that kind of self-belief in a way? Did you see it as a challenge? Like, okay, yeah, I'm being taken seriously doing this. A bit like with the GB competition like it wasn't so much about the competition it was about someone externally saying like yeah actually you're, we're taking you seriously you're pretty good at this <laughs> yeah 
Yeah, I would. I would actually agree with that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I would hundred percent say that. I think I see. There's like so many things in my life I can attribute to to some extent. Like there's certain things that I feel. I feel like now I'm so much stronger mentally than I was back then. Mm. But I can remember doing things because I knew that they were in some way validating me or you know like you know they were in some way yeah exactly what you said they were in some way validating what I was doing well one example one thing I think that's just quite funny actually you know I think a lot of climbers a lot of young climbers want to be sponsored you know mm. they want to have like uh, the, the badge saying oh, I'm sponsored by this company or whatever you know it's, it's, it's like really really common actually amongst like young climbers it's like they're desperate and I can remember having the same thoughts you know um and uh i honestly think it's because you know having a company or having somebody else other than your parents say you're doing well mate you know and we're willing to back you is such a it's such a nice thing you know it's such a it's such a positive thing and it's like the same as getting a job you know it's like somebody else is willing, is willing to say yeah we think you're worth 20k a year and we're gonna pay yeah. you that to do your job someone's saying yeah i think the same thing about your climbing and we're willing to pay you a salary to go and climb um it's, it is yeah and like the, yeah like you said that like the gb team thing was good uh, it was a good example of that um i mean i would say that it's, it's a hard one to say like the competitions were only for that they certainly weren't i'd say like as a young as a, as a person i'm very competitive mm. and uh these days for a very long time the, com- the competitive nature has largely been internal it's like i want to be the best climber i can be and that's not to say that i i don't feel like the the little um you know i don't i don't feel that sort of like competitiveness of other people occasionally of course i do you know i think it's human nature to like you know somebody else is doing well and you're like oh i want to do as good as them or whatever you know you feel that but when i was younger it was a lot more powerful and uh i struggled to control it quite as much <clears throat> so you know comp being living in the city and having less access to the outdoors, um, competition climbing was something I naturally gravitated to. And and I, I think like any young climber who's competitive, I think, you know, they would gravitate to that unless they lived somewhere where there's a lot of rock climbing and there's a there's a big community of people going out rock climbing at the crags all the time where you could get that sort of that sort of a competitive stimulus elsewhere. Um, the problem I find with competition climbing is because there's coaches and it is it no matter what you how you try to um, no matter how you try to paint it there is always one person against another and there is always a ranking system and somebody always wins and somebody's always second and somebody's always third um, because of that there can be a lot of negativity in it and uh, I was you know a Scottish climbing team coach for quite a few years and spent you know the many years before that you know um coaching and many and still to this day i'm coaching actually um and i have a little bit to do with some young climbers you know in scotland uh, especially around edinburgh and and their sort of progressing climbing and you know even last night actually i was at the climbing wall talking to a young kid who's phenomenal and he was telling me how he also struggles with this you know his competitive drive and and uh and how he's so, you know, he's he's so driven. He, he struggles to, um, 
yeah, I don't know, he's, he like struggles to like kind of black out sometimes. Um, but yeah, the, comp- the competition climbing scene can bring that out. And sometimes it's negative. Um, but I think with a bit of guidance, you know, from good coaches and, and good mentors, then it can it can go it can be a positive thing. Well, I'm sure I'm sure that you are an incredible influence, having gone through that yourself as well on those on those younger people coming up in in the sport. Um, and I'll go into that um, a little bit more later too. But you made that jump then from the the competition climbing into the more kind of adventure outdoors style of things. So, can you just talk through that transition? Yeah, sure. Um... So it wasn't like a, it wasn't jumping straight from comps to the adventure stuff. It was like, basically when I was you know, 16, I got introduced to rock climbing outdoors. And then up until I was probably in my early twenties, I'd say like 20, probably 23. I'm what you would, I'm what you would call a sport climber. I literally just like went out and clipped bolts. And when you're a sport climber, it's all about performance. It's all about like the hardest moves um, the hardest pit, individual pitches of climbing you can do. There's nothing else to it really than just like how difficult the climbing is, mm. um, purely from the physical and technical aspect. And there's nothing wrong with that. But um, I, I think kind of like, I think kind of similar to that competition thing, I got a little bit like, I don't know, I, I think I did, got a little bit like uh, disenfranchised with like that, performance for performance's sake just like pure unadulterated performance just like always going to the crag with like this is like the the goal is to climb as hard as possible and um I had this really really amazing experience with my friend Logan when I was 23 24 23 we went to the Dolomites and I you know it's one of these things I don't even know why we made that decision I I went, we went to do this route called Bella Vista and this thing is like one of like, at the time it got put up, it was one of the hardest Alpine rock routes in Europe, if not the hardest at the time, like early nineties, savagely steep, super exposed, very scary and totally unlike anything I'd ever done in my life before that, as far removed from sport climbing as you can possibly get. And yeah, we, we went and tried to climb that thing. And it was terrifying and we got benighted on a tiny little ledge. And I remember like waking, like not being able to sleep all night as the rain hammered down on my back and I couldn't feel my legs. And I remember in the darkness looking <clears throat> and I could see the twinkling of little lights in this little Italian village about like, I don't know, a few miles away. And I remember thinking like how warm it must be in these <laughs> little places. Like, oh, like Imagine, I was imagining like a warm fire and people eating and drinking. And I was like, God, why can't I be there? And we 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 basically woke up early the next day. We didn't wake up. We kind of like got up early the next morning. We climbed out of the, the route. We were successful. And we went back to the refugio and we had a nice cup of tea and a warm meal. And I just remember thinking that was the most amazing thing I've ever done. And I want to do more of that. And and that was like the the change and, and it was really funny, like I, I then, from that moment, I basically everything I did was focus on adventure stuff. I just had this like drive to go and do all the adventure things. And what I found was that the culture of people within that, or well, the community of people within that sort of, I guess, like, uh, I don't know, 
subset of of climbers they were less uh, driven by performance mm. they were more driven by experience and there was an interesting thing you, you go to a sport crag and you talk to somebody and they'd be like talk about the grade oh the, this is soft or it's hard or it's you know like they talk about like how easy the grade is or how hard the grade is or you know it's it's just all about the grade and the difficulty and how many goals it take you to, to do that one and you know it's always a competition and you know i remember being in this campsite in like this in place in Cot- called cochimo in chile really adventurous like rural uh, patagonian climbing mecca yeah and everyone was like oh, have you done this climb <clears throat> it's got a sick crack right at the top it's beautiful <laughs> it's bomber hands the whole way it's easy but my god it's an amazing position and it was just like wow these people aren't these people are, are there for the experience they're there for like look at where we are look at how amazing this is rather than yeah how hard do you climb mate you know yeah. like it's it's just uh it was different and i i was like yeah i think i like this more um and uh and yeah that was that was pretty much it, you know? Um, and interestingly enough, actually, <clears throat> I I found my way back to sport climbing. Like, I, I, I still, I, I'm going on a two-month sport climbing trip in March uh, with my puppy. <laughs> and you know what? I can't wait. And I love sport climbing. And I think it's that, it's just like, can I come, it's almost like, like coming of age, you know? It's like, I've kind of, I understand now that, you know, this competition stuff, this, you know, the pressure people put on themselves in the chat, it's all kind of like hot air and you don't have to pay attention to it. You know, you can just go and do your thing. And and sometimes if somebody says something like totally stupid, like about how hard something is or how many goals to do it, you can kind of go, all right, nice one, mate. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and then just get on with your thing. And, uh, and for the most, and I think that's it, you know, I, I've almost matured, you know, I've, I've kind of gone through all these little stages and I've come out the other end and, and now I feel I can really enjoy sport climbing and bouldering and, and it's great. Yeah. Yeah. That makes total sense. I think that kind of process of being at ease with yourself then makes you more at ease with competition and not allowing the, the results to determine how you feel about yourself or how you think others perceive you and things. And I guess, do you think that's also the difference between doing something because it's kind of notoriously hard and doing something because you authentically want to do it for you. So could you say that but again I turned something off behind me. <laughs> <laughs> so do you think that's kind of also the difference between doing something because it's notoriously hard and that's kind of done in quite a competitive spirit I guess I want to go and tackle this climb because it's hard and doing it because actually you want to do it for you. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. Yes, definitely. And I can think of some really good examples of that because, yeah, I mean, these these days I, I'm really driven by what I'm passionate about, like what I, what I, you know, if I see something I want to climb, I'm like, oh, that looks amazing. I'd love to go and have that experience to climb that. Um, but it's interesting, a lot of, in climbing, there are a lot of climbs that get done. They're like really popular climbs because I think they're famous um and because people think that by doing them it gives them more kudos you know mm. because for whatever reason they, they think they, they think they need to do that um <clears throat> a couple of examples are like 
like we have climbing I, I don't know how many people that listen to you, your podcast are climbers but in climbing we have we have grades yeah and it's amazing how much grade how, how much grades have like a pull on people's psyche yeah like people want to climb 8a 8a is like a big grade like if you climb 8a it kind of means like oh yeah you're a good climber but the the, the sort of like range of difficulty of 8a 8a can be a lot of things 8a could be actually like you know 70 plus which is a grade below 8a some 8a's are easier than some 70 pluses mm-hmm. and you know some 8a's are harder than some 8a pluses which is the grade above 8a and it's it makes a big thing that some but people are drawn to the people are te- tend to get drawn to the easy 8a's because it's an it's a way to get that grade without having to put as much effort in Mm. and on an, on like a, that's like that's something that affects everybody yeah and I, I have to say you know like doing a soft touch you're like oh yeah <laughs> yeah all right not easy yeah I'm strong <laughs> um, <clears throat> but um, the the other thing that's quite interesting is like so in in climbing you definitely get like hard classic famous climbs that people want to do and typically, like, there's, like, a few things recently, like, there was one climb I can think of recently that's had a lot of publicity because a climber did it. And all of a sudden, like, because it got given high grade, people, loads of people were drawn to it, you know, and it had lots of a sense. And so now this climb gets done all the time. And funnily enough, being, like, you know, being someone in the UK who's, I guess, like, quite well known and people are interested in what I, wanted, what I do, the question I get asked all the time is, so, Robbie, when are you going to try it? Oh, and I'm like, when I'm when I can bloody be bothered, me. <laughs> I was like, who says I have to go and do this? Like, I don't have to go and do anything. I was like, and um, it's funny. Like, I, I was, I'm thinking, like, uh, you know, friends, friends ask me, like, when are you going to climb nine A, Robbie? When are you going to go and try it? And I'm just like, well, it's not something that really inspires me to do right now. Maybe I'll try. Maybe I'll get inspired by a climb of that grade eventually. But honestly, the thing that inspires me most is is this and and this and. I'd much rather go and do them and you know you don't you know maybe they're, they're, they wouldn't get as much kudos as something else but there's something that inspires me and I think that that's more important than, than following you know what other people necessarily say but maybe that's just again me being a bit more confident in in myself these days. Because I mean, I mean, you've still got an incredible CV of, of so many different climbs. But so, which one or which few would you say are kind of your most personally significant? Could you could you just give a brief description of of that one or or those ones? Yeah, I'd say like probably the most significant one I've ever done is this route called "What We Do in the Shadows," mm-hmm. um, and that's uh, in the far no- I said far north Scotland, it's in Inverness, which is quite far north. Um, it's about like 20 minutes from Inverness and the reason that's significant is because it <clears throat> was the hardest moves I've ever had to do on a climb in my life and it took me a long time to realize whether or not I could actually do it like there was a huge chunk of time when I, I felt like I don't know if I can even do some of these moves and linking them all together in a row just seems impossible and then but it also it also like the the period of time it it took me to do it it went through that lockdown period and it was also the period when my dad died mm-hmm. and so there was like a real like emotional like draw there and actually like going up going up to that place was really therapeutic for me because it was such a beautiful place and not very many people go there 
and so it's very quiet and I used to just love taking my van up there and just parking and just in this beautiful little like lay by with a loch and I'd go swimming and then you know going climbing it was easy I could just walk in it took 20 minutes <clears throat> set the ropes up and spend all day just like hanging from a rope just trying the moves and just that process of just figuring the climb out um was just really yeah it was just it was just really good and then and ultimately it, it, it you know eventually the, the pieces of the puzzle came together and I started to believe it was possible and then one day I, I actually managed to climb it um on what we call a top rope so that means like it's not technically an ascent but you've climbed you've climbed the climb without falling you just haven't put the gear in and led it and uh, arguably there's there's not a huge difference but the difference is that you know leading it there's the mental aspect like you've got to place the gear and you've got to risk taking the fall mm. but um actually actually when I actually did the moves in a row and didn't fall off on that top rope day that was the best I ever felt it was like I, I realized I can do this and that was like it was such a it was like well you've 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 gone from not having been able to do any of the moves to being able to do all of the moves in a row now it's possible now you can try and lead this thing and that, that was pretty yeah pretty cool Thank you. That's so generous of you, firstly, for sharing um, about your emotional connection to that and and the loss of your father. And I I am so sorry for your loss. Sort of the way that you spoke about that too, it puts me in mind of kind of craftsmanship. And do you see climbing as a craft that you you hone? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, Yeah, I guess, I guess, a craft or yeah just, just developing like the skills really yeah any just constantly constantly trying to improve and learn more better your <clears throat> better your technique get a bit stronger get a bit fitter i mean all these projects i see projects a bit like puzzles yeah Oh, there's just oh man, it's so it's so many like ways you could like so many metaphors and images of climbing, isn't there? I, I sometimes think of climbing like art, you know, mm. especially first ascenting. When you're doing a climb that's never been done before, you look at a wall and you look up at it and it's just like this blank canvas, and you're like, ah, oh, like where does the line go? What's gonna be possible? And you put a rope down it and you abseil down it, and then it's like it is kind of like art but it's also like this <clears throat> process of like discovery where you're cleaning little bit little holds clean little pockets and like finding little edges and you're like oh this 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 is possible i feel that this can go um and then it's like the learning process of like trying to climb it like you put the rope down and now you're like chalking up the holds and you're pulling the moves and you're trying to climb it and that process is like yeah it's like uh it's just like the puzzle, the puzzle has puzzle uh, is getting figured out, yeah. And that process can take a long time. It can take it could take like a day, or it could take a year, mm-hmm. or it could take several years. You know, it it depends on how hard the climb is. But um, the that whole process that you go through the entire time, you are not just learning how to climb this climb, but you're gaining skills that will help you in future climbs as well. And um, that's the funny thing. A lot of people say like you know, what is going to be your ultimate climb? Well, there's no ultimate climb because I love climbing and I'm never going to stop climbing. That's one thing I know. And 
you know, it'll always be a stepping stone to the next thing. And like you said, yeah, it's like in some ways it's like, yeah, I'm honing my craft so that I can go and do more climbs, better climbs, uh, climbs that inspire me even more. And, uh, and yeah, I'll just, yeah, just keep, keep doing that. Yeah. That's really interesting. So I guess it kind of works within those sort of micro and then macro sort of cycles of, uh, uh, on the one hand, you're kind of learning, the process and having that relationship with a specific client, but then that's feeding into kind of a, a broader brush stroke of, of ones that will happen in the future. And I really like that analogy with art. There's this, um, there's a painter that I really love called Frank Auerbach, who does kind of modernist sort of abstract um, portraits of people, but sometimes he'd like sit with these portraits for years and there'd be a scraping back of the paint and then adding more and then sometimes just like kind of trashing it and sort of starting again but underneath it all there's that that scaffolding and they grow and emerge and I guess that's kind of it's a bit similar to climbing I I would imagine that kind of recalibrating things rethinking and then that sort of all coming together in in your in what becomes your canvas I guess really yeah, definitely. And, and, you know, sometimes you have, you might have like, sometimes you might have multiple projects and you have one project that you're like, <clears throat> man, you know what, this, I've tried this now for like a few weeks. It's not quite coming together. I feel like, I feel like I need something else to make this happen. So you're like, right, well, it's pockets and I'm, I seem to be not strong enough at the pockets. So I'm going to go away and I'm going to try some different pocket climbs and I'm going to try and learn how to be a better climber on pockets. And then you come back a year later with new skills, you put in some specific time to training these skills or these aspects of your climbing abilities. And you come back and you're like, oh, it's easier now. It's like <laughs> I seem to have like unlocked something, you know, and and that's and I guess that's that's one part of it. But I mean, I, I really I really love like that um, that discovery uh a discovery phase in uh, in climbing when you are learning how to climb something and it's not really a physical thing it's more of a it's more like a technical thing and an understanding of like the movement the, the real nuances of your body positioning and the way your fingers grab each hold and it's so specific i remember on what we do in the shadows the difference guy there was like a right hand hold and I could only hold it in one way to get the left hand hold. And then the next move um, to get the next hand hold, I had to change the position of my thumb on the same hold in order to make the next move. And it was just literally, it was literally the difference between my thumb being, you know, one inch below and then my thumb being on top of my index finger. And that subtle change made it possible, made it, you know, from impossible to possible. And it's figuring out those little tiny details, which I think can be really rewarding. I remember I've got videos of me like literally losing my mind over the discovery of, you know, some tiny little bit of beta that just unlocked the sequence. And I was like, ah, oh, it's amazing. And yeah, yeah, that's, that's what I love about it. That's so interesting hearing you, you speak about that. And do you find that actually, I mean, I guess there's the kind of perception of of the kind of climbing that you do and the sort of um, the risks related to it and what kind of thrills and type two fun that might give someone. Um, do you find that actually it's those kind of 
micro again talking micro macro kind of adventures and sort of figuring out that almost gives the bigger thrills and sort of the the bigger picture of how scary something is <laughs> yeah absolutely because and this is this is quite a I'm not going to. I'm not speaking for every climber, but I'd say the mass majority of climbers are not like thrill seekers. They're not like adrenaline junkies. They're not like they're not like I'm just doing this for a hit of adrenaline. I'm going to like put my life at risk to do this because actually climbers are very risk averse. Mm. Nobody's wanting to hurt themselves. Nobody's going climbing because they think it's going to be dangerous and they might not be walking home that that night. You know they're. They're very good at assessing risks. And um, I actually think that there's other aspects to climbing that people enjoy. And I'd say one of the things that you've just, which we've just been talking about is like that, like figuring out the puzzle. I'd say that is overarching probably one of the things people most enjoy about climbing. When you talk about real climbers, like, <clears throat> like, like, you know, like the real climbers, like the ones that love to go out and try hard on the rock, whether you're a boulder, a sport climber, competition climber a trad climber regardless of what type of climber you are like learning that, that learning process that self that discovery and that put that problem solving that is something that climbers really really love to do um I had something else actually in my mind that i've completely forgotten about um oh yeah another, another like like i guess it's part of the problem solving but like the gear side of things you know like like people love uh figuring out like what gear to place and um, keeping themselves safe you know like that's something I actually have spoken about quite a bit recently actually is you know trad climbing when I was younger I had this idea that trad climbing which is the placing of passive protection um that's the, the adventurous type of climbing they, I thought that that was about being risky I thought that was about being brave I thought trad climbers were people who just basically rocked up the crag and went almost like took a dice and rolled it and see what they get you know, like, let's just see what happens and just be really brave and hopefully I won't fall off. That is not at all what climbers do, trad climbers do. It's all about, like, trying to make a climb as safe as possible and um, and whether that is finding the right gear or the really specific gear that's really marginal but makes it safe or actually becoming such a becoming a better climber and having confidence in your own abilities to keep yourself safe through the scary bit so that you can get to the bit where you can plug in the right gear and then keep it safe again. And um, <clears throat> yeah, I think that, so I think like, you know, climbers enjoy, enjoy that type of thing, you know, just like, yeah, like rather than, it's not really about like, man, I just, I just got away with it, you know, because if that was what it was about, you'd hear a lot more climbers would be dying or severely injuring themselves. And to be totally honest with you, you don't actually hear about that many climbers hurting themselves. There's a lot more mountain bikers hurting themselves than climbers. Mm -hmm. I know that because I've got loads of mates who do both. And uh, and they, they're, they're always they're always injuring their collarbones in mountain biking um, <laughs> and then having to take time off climbing. Um, but... You know, I think that's I think that's because climbing climbing is quite slow and it's you know it's quite methodical and you can, you got time to to make decisions and uh, and nobody's going out there risking their life. Even you look at guys like Alex Honnold, who are you know world famous, and people when you know I get a bit of context to Alex Honnold. Alex Honnold's like the world's best, I guess, free solo climber. He climbs without ropes, and people 
a lot of uh, non-climbers are like, he's going to die and he's going to, and this, you know, his solo escapades are going to encourage kids to go out and solo and you're going to get this whole wave of generation of climbers who are going out solo and, and then his film came out and it's super famous and guess how many people rocked up to the bottom of El Capitan and attempted to free solo it? None. <laughs> because, because people know that's complete suicide if you just rock up to the bottom of walls and attempt to solo them. Whereas Alex practiced that climb for multiple years. He puts time and energy into like, you know, figuring out all the nuances, all the tiny details. He enjoys that, you know? He doesn't want to put his life at risk needlessly. The only reason he committed to it was because he had a fairly good, he was like, I I believe I can do this. And this is a challenge I want to overcome. And uh, I'm ready to commit. Mm. And I think that's, I think all climbers really understand that. No, there's very few people in our sport who are reckless. Although there are people who, who make reckless decisions, but with the with experience you become better at understanding what the difference between being bold and being reckless is and uh and that is that is i think like quite key yeah to to climbing i think that's a really interesting and important distinction and i guess it, in terms of bravery like being brave as you say isn't being reckless or putting yourself in harm being brave is risking failure but possibly based on the fact that you might not get it right. You might not yet, as you've said, kind of honed your craft to the point that you can succeed at it. But the brave people are those who who are, you know, put themselves out there and, and do it. But knowing that it, it might not succeed, that's bravery. But doing it without any skills and, and yeah, maybe endangering others who have to come and rescue you, that's not brave <laughs> yeah, exactly. i mean of course like you, you hear every year you hear about people in scotland going climbing on the ben and they always say going climbing but quite often the time it's like walking or like you know but maybe sometimes it is climbing but it's often like uh, they get rescued uh, or there's accidents and it's often it's not always but it's it's often people who don't have the right equipment who got who got lost you know because they didn't have the right skills you know, they got stuck somewhere, something like that. Um, and, uh, you know, of course, there's a lot more other, a lot of other things that can happen up in the mountains. Uh, objective hazards like avalanche, and that's always terrible. Mm. But, um, you, you know, you always hear about somebody getting rescued who went out in, like, sneakers and, like, shorts. Just climbed Ben Nevis or something like that. <laughs> oh <my goodness> <laughs> I was talking to uh, Reese Jenkins, who did, uh, he ran the three peaks and then ran in between as well. And he was saying he went up Snowdon and there were like some kids in their shorts, like smoking a spliff on the top of Snowdon. He was like, What yeah. are you doing? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I think they're all right, but it's just definitely not not the way to go, really. <laughs> I can't remember where this, where this was. It was like a meme or something, but it was like, you know, guy goes out, buys all the climbing gear, climbs Ben Nevis, and at the top there's a couple of Neds in like shorts, drinking Bucky, like in t-shirts. Like, like they're they're like better climbers or something. It's so true though. I'm, yeah, I'm still waiting for the year where someone like tries to run UTMB in in sketches, light up trainers or something. And- <laughs> As 
wondering if you could also just reflect on kind of the significance of those relationships. Yeah, sure. I mean, yeah, it's really important for me to find uh, the right climbing partner uh, to do things with. I've been very lucky. I've had loads of amazing climbing partners over the years. And uh, I'll be totally honest, like a lot of the time, I don't choose them because they're particularly good uh, anything and you know any any climbing like they they obviously are generally very good climbers because <clears throat> but you know there's there's a lot of very good climbers in the world mm-hmm. the re- main reason I pick my climbing partners is because I get along with them really well um they're friends you know people that I I love climbing with and spending time with and I think that more than anything is is probably most important because I you know a lot of the skills and stuff in climbing you can learn these things a lot of the soft skills that is like rope work and and understanding conditions and and uh, and all that sort of stuff. Um, so there's a lot more to being a good climber than just being a good climber. But it doesn't take long to learn the soft skills. But then there is a there's a you know if you don't get along with somebody, it's it's a, and and you're spending a long time with them in quite an intense place. That I think is more risky than anything else. I actually read that years ago in in a in a book on expeditions to Alaska and it was talking about how you choose your team mm. and uh, it said something along the lines of if you um if you've got a group of people who don't get along nobody will nobody will be agreeing on anything and that's almost riskier than um, oh no sorry it was it was saying something along the lines of you know you could have you could have a group of really really experienced people um who who don't get along but because they don't get along they might like end up making like stupid decisions because they don't like each other um, or you could have like one experienced person and a bunch of people who aren't experienced but like they all get along and then they just like make good decisions because you know they they don't argue and they they they, they make but yeah something along the lines of that anyway but um i think i think it, i do think it's true like uh and uh yeah i mean good example is my mate Alex mm-hmm. uh, who I did the long hope with you know before we did the long hope Alex had never done anything remotely as hard or as big or as scary or as complex as the long hope in fact majority of the climbing he does is bouldering which is only about five to ten meters above the ground and this thing was 400 meters above the sea um and there were so many objective hazards on that climb. But having climbed with Alex, you know, numerous times over the years and we get along really well and I kind of understood like the, the sort of things he was interested in doing and his sort of the things he was driven by were more adventurous than I had actually than actually on paper you would think, because looking at his list of achievements, which are all incredibly impressive, you would never have been like, oh, he's the man to go and do the hardest sea cliff climb in the world with. Mm-hmm. But in a, in, a, in a way, it was the same with me when I was like 23, 24. You would have looked at my list of climbing achievements and you would have been like, well, this guy isn't the guy to go and do one of the hardest routes in the Dolomites. Um, but, you know, that, that, that stuff, stuff like that changes. And, uh, and so Alex was a fantastic partner. And uh, there was a, yeah, I mean, there's loads I could I don't know where to go with this conversation there's loads I could talk about with regards you know 
that sort of thing. I don't know. Have you got any? What do you? No, I think, you I, my my takeaway sort of from from the film was one. Alex is a really solid bloke, and it seemed like you kind yeah, of went solid. you went through a real sort of roller coaster of of emotions together. And I guess that you're you sort of. Um, articulate those more than Alex. Alex seemed to sort of be quite self-contained in how he was kind of approaching the challenge of it. And it really struck me actually when you you got to the top and you you'd ascended and and then there was this kind of outburst of like you you were just so elated and then but then you had to go down and then you helped Alex get up. And there was just this really it was just really touching and sort of exemplified I think for me that that partnership is about you both succeeding it's not just about one ego or or one celebration well that's actually yeah 100 percent. and there's something i didn't actually include in the film which i kind of wish i wish i did but to be totally honest with you it's because i i couldn't find the wee sound bit that i needed to uh, to include it but um, I actually have, uh, I'm going to talk about it in our lecture series and I managed to find the sound bit. I've actually shared it on Instagram, in fact. But there's basically me and Alex, before we did the last pitch, we were on this little ledge called the guillotine. <laughs> yeah, it's a really small little place. But um, I remember basically I was standing at the guillotine and I was racking up, putting the gear on my harness <clears throat> for doing the last pitch. You can imagine like this is an incredibly like tense period because we've climbed 300 meters off, you know, just like the most ridiculous, complex and really scary climbing to get to this one point. And we're 70 meters from the top. And, you know, the sun is starting to go down, you know, we've only got a limited amount of light left. And, you know, this, you know, it's, it's, this is kind of like, you know, this is the moment to do it. And, I'm racking up, putting the gear on my harness, and I've put it back to front. And I'm like, God damn it. Like, I just, I honestly was like losing my mind. I didn't know which way it was up. And then Alex looked down at the last sort of like 300 meters of climb we'd done and just went, Oh man, that'd be shit to have to do all that again, wouldn't it? <laughs> and uh, it was this real funny moment where I, I basically thought that Alex was kind of giving up. Not giving up on that moment, but to put it to put it into perspective, I know myself that I am incredibly stubborn, and with projects like these, I always know that you know if I don't do it this time, there's always another time. I'll just come back in a few days and have another shot at it. <clears throat> but being part of a team, I've learned over the years um, that not everybody is motivated by the same things. And it's it's important not to force your motivations, your your ideas on other people. You've kind of got to like just kind of let them decide whether or not it's right for them. And when Alex said that, I thought that what he was saying was, I don't want to come back up here. Um, this is probably your last chance at doing this. Mm. And suddenly I just felt this enormous weight of pressure on me because I was like, God, this is I'm 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 tying in right now for the last attempt at doing the long hope this year. If if Alex doesn't want to come back here this trip, it's over for me. And I was like, oh no. And and then I I think I said like 
think I said to him something like this. Um, <clears throat> oh yeah, man, it's all right. It's like if you if you don't want to come back up here, we can just you know we can just do some other stuff. And then Arch just went, "Oh no, man, I didn't mean like that. <laughs> I mean, if you if you don't do this, I'll come back. I'll I'll go down to the bottom and I'll do all that shit again with you." <laughs> and I was like, "Are you sure?" And he was like, "Of course, man. It's been a it's been a brilliant adventure. I'd do it all again." And I was like, "Oh, thanks, man." And it was like it was like uh, just this realization that he was like a hundred percent supporting my success as I was his. And suddenly I just felt like all the weight that I had on me before then, like all my confusion and my mind, of just this surge of energy and just felt really good. And I was like, I'm going to fucking try really hard now. <laughs> I'm going to go for this, you know? And uh, and then I did it. And then when I topped out, there was just no time. I was like, I have to get down to Alex now because he needs to give a good shot. Mm-hmm. And when I got down to Alex, he was just like, oh man, I don't think... Uh, I don't think I've got it in me now. And I'm like, no, nah, man, you've got to do this. Come on, you've got to try hard. Just go for it. And he's like, oh, do you think so? And I'm like, we might as well. Like, we're here, you know, just give it a <laughs> shot. He's like, all right. And then he just went up and did it as well. And it was just like perfect because, yeah, I mean, like, you know, if one of us had done it, it would have been a little bit of a hollow victory. I honestly don't think I would have been able to have enjoyed it because I would have known that, yeah, Alex – one up, you know, Alex wouldn't have, enjoyed, wouldn't have done it and, and vice versa, you know. Um, the fact that we both did it was just perfect. Uh, and I think that was ultimately because such a good team. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I would go and do more climbing with Alex and I will be going to do more climbing with Alex for sure because of that. And is it because you talked about um, the sort of community that you found through climbing when, when we first started talking and is it that sort of camaraderie that that you form and those relationships that also play into this kind of love-hate relationship with the challenge because anyone watching it is like just to put it in context there's this sheer cliff face going into the sea most of which is kind of crumbling to your touch as well and falling apart and you're kind of crawling along these ledges that are full of bird shit as well and vomit and things and at times like you just look so agonized and like you're really not having fun but then as I as I described that kind of whoop and like emotion that spills out when you do it it's clear that you have been enjoying it <laughs> and and does kind of like your your relationship with Alex as well as the 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 sort of difficulty and problem solving is that what's kind of also behind that that whoop <laughs> yeah, yeah of course I mean I think there's just there's just so many things like <clears throat> there's like obviously the relationship with Alex and having a great time with someone you really like and spending time with of course it's a huge part of it um like you said you know there's like moments where maybe it seemed like I wasn't enjoying myself um but actually they're very few and far between you know for the most part I'm having a bloody great time you know I'm like <laughs> this is awesome look at where we are like yeah I'm a bit scared right now but this is like the coolest place on earth and you know there's there's some really there's some moments when when I really you could I could honestly say this is like the happiest time of my life like there's one bit in the film 
when me and Alex are working, we're just practicing this one section and Alex goes first and he, he makes a bit of a dog's ear of it. And he's like, oh, this is so hard. And then I go, oh, let me have a shot. And then I do it. And because I've got the beta, the, the moves really sussed, I can make it look really effortlessly. But um, And then I go, that's how you do it. <laughs> In a joy jokey kind of way. Um, but during that moment, during that little scene, like there was almost no wind and the conditions on the rock were perfect and the sun was fairly low so the rock all kind of glowed orange with like the setting sun mm-hmm. and it was and this sort of full mars the birds they're just kind of gliding in the air beside you and there's like 300 meters of air below your feet and you look down and you can see the the seawater just crashing against the rocks below and the white swirls make these sort of mesmerizing like just uh, spirals in 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 the sea and it's just like the most magical incredible place to be in that moment and you're doing something i mean the climbing you're doing you absolutely love as well so it's just like this just like intoxicating like combination of everything you love in life all in this one rad moment and so you know having those moments interspersed with a few kind of like uncomfortable moments <laughs> it's totally worth it you know that that makes the hair on my on my arms stand up it's really really emotive and do you find that do you find that actually the documenting of it, that the filming of these moments in the process of doing, does that kind of intensify the emotions that you're feeling? Yeah. So with the filmmaking side of things, <clears throat> um, I, I like it when I can have somebody else there to film as well, because obviously I, I having somebody else filming means that you can kind of let them get on with like the majority of it. Yeah. And when you're filming a lot of stuff yourself, there's a lot of setup required and often, uh, the, the, often the end product, uh, the, 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 the footage you've got isn't quite, isn't quite as good because you can't, they can't, you've got this fixed camera. It's not moving around or anything, but, um, but basically, you know, if I have like somebody there, I have, I've potential. I basically, it's like having all the paints in in the world to to all the colors in the world to paint this, the, the the picture you want to paint. And when I've, I've described that a few times as filmmaking for me is having having like a so making a film about these climbing trips is far better than not making a film about these climbing trips because most climbers when they finish their big amazing expedition or trip or whatever or climb they go home and they maybe have some pictures uh and some memories but you know that's kind of it when i get home i get to sit down and relive the entire thing again mm-hmm. like daily as i'm like putting together this like film and i love that process it's a little bit like it's a little bit as like i said in the projecting process before it's like you're working really hard on a sequence and you you get you sometimes you get the sequence really nice and you've got some beautiful music backing it and everything timing works really well and you're trying to you're trying to tell the story 
I mean, I'm always trying to tell the story exactly how it happened, just in a condensed sort of format. I'm not trying to sh- make it more than it actually was ever. Um, I'm just, this is literally just like the diary of what happened. Um, and uh, if I can, if I do that really well, then ultimately it makes something fun for other people to watch. But probably more than that, it makes it, it makes it a nice memory for me to look back on. And I love watching my own videos back because it's just like, God, these are like the best times of my life and I'm getting to rewatch them again. It's like having a, a, a little window into your, into your memory, you know? And it's really interesting as well, the way that you speak about that kind of content creation is sort of in the same way that we were talking about climbing in terms of it being creative. Do you see that there's a kind of synergy between the two, between the physical act of the climbing and then and then the storytelling and, and the video editing that you do? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, there's, I, I guess it, there's, there's, there's one synergy that I that I found becoming more and more uh, present and powerful when I'm going out climbing specifically, well, completely when I'm going out climbing and filmmaking. And that's, I look at climbs completely differently. I, I'm looking at climbs and thinking, not only how do I climb this, but you know, what would be the good, a good angle to have like a cameraman or, you know, what would be, what would be a good shot to have, you know? Like these holes are quite cool. It'd be quite cool to have like a close up of those for like a sequence or, or you know what? The wall looks amazing from back there. If we had a fixed camera up there, that would really bring everything together. Uh, and even like on the whole, in the whole process, um, sometimes I, I don't want to be always having my camera out because it sometimes feels a little bit like it could detract from the experience, but that's why iPhones are great. Cause you can just have them in your pocket and you know, if some, as a really quite well-known uh, climbing uh, photographer said, the times you don't want to take your camera out are the times you really need to take your camera out <laughs> because that's capturing the best moments, you know? Um, with the Long Hope film, it was, like, perfect because I had my friend Ryan Balhari along and uh, luckily, like, one of my sponsors, Adelred, gave us money so that we could pay him to come out and he just was like the film he was the cameraman for the entire trip and he did such a good job when I got home it was like it was like the fun had only just had just begun for me mm-hmm. I was like I'd done the climb now I can really enjoy creating this film to tell the story about the climb you know and it's just yeah it's just yeah it's brilliant flipping love it yeah and what was that transition like going from those the kind of shorter YouTube content that you produced to doing something that is a, it's not kind of like a long long feature film but but comparatively it's it's a longer film did you feel like you had creative freedom with it what was that process like um well, yeah cuz the, the not open high film is about 50 minutes yeah and it just kind of happened organically. I had a lot of things I wanted to tell about that trip. I really wanted to tell the story of the birds, the fulmars. Um, I really wanted to share the process of um, working the climb, like actually like showing, you know, how is it? Like how, how do you actually climb something like this hard in such a remote place and so big, you know, is, what is the process behind that? Because that's actually interesting enough. A lot of people didn't don't realize what what goes into doing these climbs a lot of like even quite experienced climbers who maybe don't do that sort of stuff 
they just think you rock up to the bottom and go for it. It's not, that's, that's basically not what happens. Um, so I wanted to share all that stuff. Uh, and there were so many little things that happened. I, I, I don't know, I just really wanted to, to kind of share as much as possible. And so I ended up just making like loads of like little sequences uh, of between like five and, yeah, I think, I think like between three and five minutes. And then suddenly I had all these pieces off a film and I stuck them all together and then thought thought it would be a great great film and uh, exported it and was like sat down with my mum and my girlfriend and was like right this is gonna be the best film you've ever seen <laughs> and we watched it this hit <laughs> oh no I was like it was terrible I was like I all these sections are brilliant in their own right but they don't tell a story and uh and then Mar- i was quite disappointed in myself mary was like mary is like really good at like helping me pull things together she's i call her the creative director because i i'm really great at building the pieces but sometimes she's got a, got a really good eye for like seeing kind of just like she always described it as pulling the golden thread through and like bringing it all together mm-hmm. and she was like oh, you know robbie if you just Honestly, if you just take that little section there, move it to there, cut that one in half, turn it around. She was like, that, I'll tell that a bit, a bit better. And then I did what she said. I, I looked at it again and I was like, yeah, it's better now. And then I had a bit of a better idea of how to like do a few extra bits. And then suddenly, then it was like, a, then it was a film, you know? Um, and so to answer your question, going from the sort of shorter form stuff to longer form stuff, it wasn't, I don't think it was like a, a, a huge, huge leap. And I still, I still will make the shorter films, you know, because they're they're fun and more digestible. But ultimately, for something like as big as a long, I just really felt it needed that story needed to, to be longer. And I got told by, I think, three professional filmmakers. I'm I'm not really a filmmaker, and I am a filmmaker now, but I'm not like I don't make my money through making films. Um, but um, I have a few people who are like really well known. They just said to me it's too long it should only be 20 minutes I was like well nah I don't think that's really what I want to do and and I actually and I filmed a couple of the film festivals that I well one of the film festivals that I put it in for they were like oh if you put it if you if you can make it 30 minutes then we can put it into this this block of films and I was like but that's 20 whole minutes that I'm not going to get to like show it's like most it's like almost half well you know it's like it's like, why would I do that? Um, so I just said, no. Nah. I was like, I'm going to be 50 minutes. And it, you know, we'll have like one screening off it. And then I'll stick it on YouTube. And if people want to watch it, they can watch it. And it, yes. And people really, I think people really liked it. And I've actually had a lot of good feedback from people who said they started watching it thinking it was going to be about 20 minutes. And they got to the 20 minute mark and went, oh, it's going on longer. And then they realized it was 50 minutes and they were like, and then they just said they couldn't stop watching it. They said it was really just really good fun. So I was like, ah, just shows you, you don't really need to listen to these people. <laughs> they say it has to be shorter. And what was it like for you actually having had that initial, um, it shit from your mom and your girlfriend, but what was it like actually hearing those reactions and kind of putting it out into the world and screening at a festival and having this more kind of public engagement with something that you have described as being quite a sort of a personal cathartic process going through you know on the editing table and things and then suddenly it's out there and people are relating to it well yeah I mean I think for the most part all the feedback is like 
it's kind of overwhelmingly positive. So I and I I really I really enjoy being told how awesome my <laughs> film is. <laughs> <laughs> it's really nice hearing lots of the nice things isn't it you're not going to deny that um i'm trying to think of any i mean there's i don't i don't really have a problem with sharing this stuff to be honest um I, I, yeah i think if i think uh it's all really it's all, it's all really honest and authentic isn't it and I don't, I don't really have a, I've never had a problem sharing stuff that I feel is like I'm sharing, like, this is me, this is who I am. I think if I was sharing something that I felt was like, not me, I'd feel worse. And actually, that has happened before. I remember once or twice, like, you know, I've been involved in like a film that someone else has shot and edited, sorry. And uh, I always, I watched it and I was like, just doesn't come across that's not what I'm, that's not, doesn't come across like me or that's not what I'm like. And I, I felt like, I felt a bit more funny about that. And I don't know, maybe that's maybe just me being insecure again. But I don't know, I, I, I don't have a problem. I don't generally have a problem with like sharing, sharing these things. Um, you know, like what we do in the Shadows films really quite, that's, that's extremely personal. Like mm. I, talk a bit about like my dad and things like that and that one and struggling with like the whole lockdown but I just I mean another good example of that one was with that with that film I had lots of really good feedback but I had just one really really nice experience where me and my friend Matt went to climbing a crag I love in the north in Northumberland called Back Bowden and we were walking in and we saw it was like late at night. It was it was actually like around about Christmas time, but not not this year, like last year. And um, we saw a light up in this cave, and we we're like, "Oh, there'll be someone bouldering up there. I wonder if they'll mind if we boulder beside them." So we, we walked up, and the guy uh, who was up there bouldering on his own, he's like, "Oh, you Robbie?" And I was like, "Yeah." And he was like, "I just watched your film," and I was like, "Oh," he's like, "Nice. Did you enjoy it?" And he was like, "Then he basically said that he'd lost his his dad." I basically he'd gone for the same thing as me and he said how how much that film meant to him like how it just like how it touched him and how it, it was yeah I don't know it was just like a really it was like I didn't expect it you know um, and we ended up having a really nice climbing session together got along really well and yeah it was just I don't know it was nice to have that experience I think putting putting all this stuff out there I, you have more of those experiences um some yeah i think people yeah you just yeah you just have more of these experiences well i think what is i mean lovely connecting with you and speaking to you do realize just how much of what you put out there it is it's just you and i know a lot of people talk about kind of you know trying to find an identity and a voice through the content that they produce and things but it does feel like you just put yourself out there and and that's I think why people connect to it and I know we we touched on a little bit earlier about your your coaching as well and what from your own experiences do you bring to that and kind of what what message do you have for younger generations of climbers who who you mentor mm-hmm. um I'm just trying to think of how I can answer this I mean like I guess just to be good stewards of climbing uh, and of the environment mm-hmm. um just trying to 
I don't, I, I like to encourage like healthy competition in that sort of like, in the sort of way I approach things, you know, like it's, it's always, it's important to, you know, like be able to try hard and give your best and always be on the pursuit of like bettering yourself, but not at the risk of your own mental health. You know, I, I ultimately, I had like some fantastic mentors when I was younger, like a few individuals who over the course of, from, from the age of sort of like 15 through to like my sort of like early twenties, I would, I, I saw every week and they had such a positive influence on my life that I, and, and again, they, 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 uh, sort of, uh, had all the same sort of values I have now and like probably like who I am today, they are a large part of that, you know, like that's, that's how I, I guess that is like who I am today is a large part of the people you hang out with. And I would like to think that I, I hope that I can do the same thing, I guess, with, with other young climbers. Um, yeah, just encourage them, as I said, to be good stewards of climbing and the environment and to treat others well and to be part of that community, a positive part of that community. Um, yeah. And do you think that that kind of links with what I wanted to ask you, what you, what you hope your legacy in climbing will be? Oh, legacy, I don't know, I don't know. <laughs> a legacy always just seems kind of like quite grand doesn't it um i it's just i just i, I hope hopefully people think that i'm i don't know doing things right by you know scottish climbing and encouraging people in the right way and you know I think hopefully people would think i'm having a positive influence on 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 the community uh i think that's probably it and also maybe like it'd be, it'd be nice to be remembered for doing some nice climbs as well <laughs> <laughs> and talking of nice climbs i know that you you're usually quite sort of transparent with with your with your future plans and things so what's next on the agenda for 2023 oh, well i mean like as i said like the, the main objective for 2023 is to make sure that this wee puppy that i've got um is like a really good crag dog uh bonnie she's licking her paw right now but she, uh, that's probably the biggest project i gotta put a lot of time and energy into making sure she's she's comfortable going to all the mountain environments that uh, i'm hopefully going to be taking her on uh taking her to um but um aside from that um probably the place i really want to go climbing in 2023 is st kilda um we went to st kilda at the end of summer uh last year and it was such an amazing trip and uh i really want to do some other stuff there but the weather had other plans um and uh, i think if i can get back there in in 2023 i think that would be fantastic it's it's always a tricky place to get to and the climbs we want to do are very difficult to access so it might require it will require some like yeah, I've a lot of things to come together to make it work, but that's probably the place I'd I'd love to go back to. Do you have to see kayak to get there or interesting you said that. You you technically no, you so you can get like a ferry to the main island of Herta okay. from Harris. Um what we what we did was I met a guy who knew a guy 
who was basically retired and had a boat and was interested in going to St Kilda. Um, the funny, the funny story is like my girlfriend has a saying um, that life shits gold on me. <laughs> and, uh, so she always says it's ridiculous how many things happen in your life that lead you to the things you want to do. And uh, I, I actually, I, I think it's because I always tend to be in these quite crazy places where other crazy people tend to like hang out. Um, and uh, I was walking on Sky and uh, I was in this really remote part of Sky and I bumped into this total random walker guy. He just saw I had ropes and he went, oh, you got ropes, you're a climber. I was like, yeah. And I was like, what are you doing here? He said, oh, I'm a sailor and I've got my boat in the, in the, in the bay. And I was like, oh, that's fantastic. I want to go to St. Kilda. Do you fancy going? <laughs> and he was like, uh, he was like, oh, uh, maybe. I was like, oh, I'll keep in touch. Anyway, he got in touch three months later and introduced me to this guy who, who could take us to St. Kilda. And he ended up being this total legend, 70-year-old retired shipping lawyer who basically had this wonderful little boat called Half Light. And he took me, my friend Hamish, Guy and Will to St. Kilda for two and a half weeks or for up the Western Isles for two and a half weeks, five days of that was in St. Kilda. And, um, and so, yeah, we took a boat. So it meant we had total autonomy to do whatever we wanted, depending on the weather. So we had like uh, a couple of days in Isle of Burnaray. Um, and then we went to St. Kilda. And then on the way back, we went to Mingile and, and climbed there. It was just like the most, one of those amazing trips I've ever been on. It was so cool. Um, but what it did mean was it's kind of really set a very, very high standard for the type of that type of trip because I'm like, now I have to have a boat when I go to these places. And it's like, they're not easy to come by. So I need life to shit some more gold on me so I can get another boat. Um, so, uh, yeah, that's the next goal. I think that's the, probably the thing I'm going to try and figure out next is how I can get a boat. No, not personally. I just need to find people who are like-minded and willing to do a trip like this for cost rather than like renting it because I just can't afford to do that. That squeaking you hear is actually, uh, Bonnie playing with her fox. I was about to say, have we got Bonnie on board? <laughs> From the squeaking. Sorry about that. <laughs> it's alright, I'm very pro-dog on, on this podcast, definitely. And I have one final question for you, Robbie, which I ask all my guests, which is what does joy mean to you? Um, oh God. Um, this is I'm worse really than the legacy question. <laughs> I have these sorts of like kind of deep like questions. What does joy mean? Joy, happiness is <laughs> a bad answer. Um, I'm trying to think. Okay, uh, let me let me try and do this properly. Joy. I think what I said earlier. Joy is you know being in the places I love. Um, doing the things that I, I love to do and being with the people I love to be with. So that's, that's a good answer for joy, I guess, from my part. I think that's lovely. And is, that, is that the right answer? Is that the right answer? There isn't a right answer. You're, <laughs> make, you're making me feel like my day job being a teacher. And like, is it okay, Mercy? Is it fine? <laughs> yeah. What grade would I get? <laughs> <This is> the- <laughs>
definitely an A for effort. It's been uh, such a roller coaster of a conversation. And I, I love it that we kind of started with clearing up dog shit and then we've had shit raining gold on you <laughs> um, at the end. So it's been a lovely cycle. And um, you are so thoughtful. And I've just really enjoyed being kind of led on this this journey of of seeing climbing in this really creative um and artistic light but then also the the wonderful stories and relationships and humor behind it as well um thank you so much for sh- sharing that voice with the world um so I certainly connect with it and uh, I know so so many others do and I, I really hope that this year continues to to bring you boats and means of <laughs> of transport to these amazing places that you can continue um to do so oh thanks very much yeah and thank you very much for having me on the podcast it was really enjoyable no that's great good luck robbie thank you i'm so grateful to the community that is growing around the podcast And if you've enjoyed today's episode, I would so appreciate if you can share it with your communities and help spread the message of support, perseverance and joy further. If you have any feedback or suggestions for future guests, you can find me on Instagram at running underscore on underscore joy. I'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening and I'll see you next time for Running on Joy.